Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And we are going to talk about true crime and paranormal out of Louisiana. Why do you always try the accents? (laughs) Oh, that wasn't an accent. That was just saying it. (laughs) Sounded like an accent to me. Me too. Oh, yes, we do have a guest again, our pinch drinker, Alex. Welcome. Thank you. So I've got the true crime. Beth, you have the paranormal and the drink. What'd you make? It looks interesting. This is a brandy milk punch. Okay. I mean, this is just a good change of pace. This looks completely different than anything we've had so far. Here we go. Cheers. That is very strong. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Hello. Wow. It's like a, it looks like just milk and it definitely does not take, it's kind of it kind of reminds me of what's that? Eggnog. Yeah, Eggnog. Or no, but what's that other stuff? Uh, rum chata. That's what I th- thought I was gonna taste, and then definitely when you taste no. it, it's not at all. <laughs> Doesn't taste like a shot of rum chata. No, it's not sweet at all. No, and I think that's what's kind of thrown me off. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it looks like a sweet drink. It would be a sweet drink. Yeah, it's definitely not sweet. <laughs> Woo! So this drink actually was first recorded from sixteen. 16- 88. Wow. Yes. Wow. They must have liked their liquor hard. (laughs) It spread to the U.S. territories and was incredibly popular in New Orleans and was actually recorded in 1763 by Benjamin Franklin. Oh, another president involved. Pretty sure Ben Franklin wasn't like the best guy. I learned that from that. Wasn't a president. (laughs) Scratch that. I, I believe he did invent the bifocals, though. Yes, and he, he needed, enjoyed... He needed them after this drink. <laughs> <laughs> he enjoyed his version of this cocktail with brandy, lemon, and hot milk. That's how he enjoyed it. Hmm. That, was uh, a, that would be a good good evening night drink right before you go to bed. Warm glass of milk. So it reached its height and popularity in the 18th century. Because it states, because of its shelf stability, (laughs) probably because it's so strong, but it's milk, so that's kind (laughs) of gross. (laughs) And yeah, it's very common in New Orleans, it says. Really? And traditional on holidays throughout the Deep South. The holiday thing. um, Immediately, it it brought me to think, you know, Christmas, some Mm -hmm. kind of cocktail that you would have around. Well, it does kind of eggnog. Yeah. Definitely comes to mind, first of all, yeah. The recipe is, mm-hmm. this is makes one serving, two ounces of brandy, Whoa. one and a half ounces of heavy cream or almond milk, one ounce of simple syrup, and a half teaspoon of vanilla extract. Oh. And then on the top, you can put some grated nutmeg. Yeah, I don't see that on my... Did you do that? I actually put that in... And that's what I taste. The I, shake. I taste the nutmeg. So, do you like it? Do you um, no, I do not like it because I guess I can't mentally get over the fact that it's not, there's no hint of sweet to it and it's too strong, too strong to me. I personally, I do like it. I like stronger drinks. Well, <laughs> so I, I do like it, but I will probably not drink it until I start hearing your paranormal because I think it's going to go straight to my head. <laughs> 
don't know if we should trust your opinion, thinking that Ben Franklin was a president. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Uh, I mean. Oh, I, I think you did. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I know he was not a president. Ben Franklin, one of the best presidents out there. <laughs> you learn something new every day. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I would say thank you. Um, but, you know, next time it'll, it'll be maybe something I like, right? He's hard, hard to please. He Let is. Tell you, I he think has hated every one of my drinks except for one. Yeah. I, that was the, co- the rum and, rum and coke. Rum and coke. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I guess it's been a little bit. Well, <laughs> thank you for having me. All right. See ya. <laughs> well, I'm happy at least you liked the cocktail, Mom. Yeah, don't know if I'm going to be able to finish that whole Now they have double, but <laughs> drinking alone again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Alex poured his cocktail into mom's. <laughs> yeah, now it looks a little big. <laughs> a little daunting. <laughs> All right. Serious time. Yes, very serious. As a matter of fact, I was not familiar with this man at all. Never heard of him. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was kind of a really scary place to live. At one time, there were four or five serial killers working around that one area. What? Yeah. I mean, talking about police work, holy smokes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Nightly, Baton Rouge residents learned of yet another body of a woman being found Stabbed, strangled, raped, beaten, and murdered. Primilla Burns, who was the former first assistant district attorney of East Baton Rouge Parish, Louisiana, is quoted as saying in the 2018 True Crime Daily article, which, by the way, I refer to a lot during this episode, quote, he would rape each of these women and then, to cover it up, beat them to death, stab them to death. But then the police caught a break, a victim escaped, and could describe her assailant. So this is oh. serial killer number one. He was Derek Todd Lee. And anytime you, I guess that name is very familiar to true crime people, mm-hmm. especially associated to Louisiana. He was a mentally challenged convicted voyeur. Once they had a name, police were able to tie at least seven rapes and murders through DNA to Lee. He was arrested in May 2003, but was the man responsible for all the killings? At first, people were like, they didn't know they had that many serial killers, obviously, on the loose. And so they thought they had caught the guy. But no. In fact, there was another murderer out there who was even worse. This murder was taking souvenirs, dismembering victims, and it was suspected he had eaten parts of some of his victims. Here I have to warn you, our listeners and you, that this episode is chilling and can be graphic. I will not share everything I read, but it will still be more graphic than most of our others. Here we go. In March 1994, the body of Anne Bryan, age 81, was found in her apartment, which was located in an upper-scale retirement complex. She had been brutally stabbed 47 times in her face, breast, and genitalia, and her throat was slashed. Aren't places like that, like, heavily, like, security and stuff? Well, from what I understand, she had left the door unlocked because her nurse was expected to come. Oh, my gosh. 
The police had no leads as to her murder, and the case sat unsolved for 10 years. They didn't have, like, cameras in the hallways in case... Oh, no, gosh. this was 1994. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Catherine Ann Hall, 29, her body was found posted right under a dead-end road sign. Sick. And it was literally posed under there, as if the killer was making a light of the situation. She had been strangled with a zip tie and stabbed 16 times. Her killer had engaged in necrophilia with her corpse and then had mutilated her body by stabbing her another 21 times. Jeez. Not to be graphic, but here we go. A pubic hair was found in her mouth. It still had its root attached, which obviously was really going to help with the DNA. Hardy Smith, 52, married and a mother of three. She loved to run. In fact, she participated in the Boston Marathon. She was an avid runner. She'd run every morning through Pollard Estates where she lived. It was on such a morning, May 30th, 1999, that she disappeared. Her body was found two days later near a bayou outside of Baton Rouge. She had been hit by a car, strangled with a nylon zip tie, and raped. Her body also showed signs of necrophilia and had been mutilated. So this is where police work just blows my mind. Because looking at these three cases separately from 1994 to 1999. Well, there's a big gap. There's a five-year gap there where there was nothing going on. Exactly. And there's really no commonality between them except for the stabbing. But how many other stabbings happen? And they're women. And they're women. That is the only thing. The age is different. The race was different. The locations were different. So that's where it's just like, wow. Yep. Their demographic was different. Some of them were sex workers, Hardy Smith was not. I mean, she was a mother, you know, and and in a very, I wouldn't say affluent, but upper middle class housing area, you know. Right. So, yeah, everything's different. So how can you even connect these? You don't. That's, you don't, exactly. Joyce Williams, 36 years old, was last seen on November 12th, 1999. She had attended two years at Southern University and loved to sing and dance. Her body was not found until January 22nd. 2000. Oh my gosh. It had been dismembered, some parts missing, and stuffed in garbage bags and a Xerox box. The autopsy found that she had been strangled with the nylon zip tie. Now we're starting to connect things a little bit. A little bit. Lillian Robinson, age 52. She was a regular churchgoer and was close to her two sisters. Lillian went missing in January 2000, and her body was not found until March in swampy waters. She had been strangled, and her body showed signs of necrophilia. Johnny Mae Williams, age 47, mother of three, who loved to bake. She was murdered October 9th, 2003. What's particularly sad about this murder is that she and Gillis were friends. She would sometimes clean the house for Gillis for extra money, and occasionally they would smoke weed together. Her body was found in a wooded area by some squirrel hunters. Squirrel hunters? Yeah, they eat the squirrels. It's a source of protein. Not unusual. She had been beaten to death. Her body had been slashed and her hands had been cut off. But DNA in the form of hair was found on the wrist bones. Oh. So her hands were missing. But the DNA was on her wrist bones. The hair was body hair from a Caucasian male. Because remember, they don't know who this is yet. Right, 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 right. Donna Bennett Johnson... 
43. She had five children and had once been a police informant. Her body was found February 26, 2004, in a ravine off of a road. She had been strangled with a nylon zip tie. Her body had been mutilated, cannibalized. Her mm. left arm had been cut off at the elbow and was missing, and a tattoo of a butterfly on her inner thigh had been cut off. Then her back had been stomped on by a foot before it was left in a cow pasture. My gosh. At this crime scene, a very observant investigator found tire tracks, took pictures of them as well as casts. DNA was found under Donna's fingernails. Now, back to the tire tracks, because they are what tied this case together. This is so fascinating. The tire tracks were from a Goodyear tire, a very rare Goodyear tire. I was going to say, aren't Goodyear tires very like popular? Yeah, but this one was different, and only 200 of these tires had been sold in the Baton Rouge area. Oh my gosh. The task very force rare. went about finding the car owners who had bought the tires in the last 12 months. So that narrowed it down even more. But police also needed DNA from the car owners. Okay. Because they needed to, to match them to the mm -hmm. DNA they found on the victims. So they asked the car owners to submit to an oral DNA swab, which most did, saying they had nothing to hide. One of the car owners who had bought the tires was Sean Vincent Gillis, a 42-year-old unemployed, intelligent, soft-spoken science fiction geek Ugh. who lived in a house owned by his mother. I just got goosebumps all over. Sorry. Who, by the way, was paying the mortgage, although she lived in Atlanta. Hmm. Gillis lived in the house with his girlfriend of nine years. What? Terry Lamone. Oh my gosh, these people drive me crazy. <laughs> Gillis I just said, don't understand how you just don't know your partner. Sorry. Oh, it gets a little better. Oh, no. Gillis said some suspicious things when the police got his DNA swab. Okay, now remember, they're just getting his DNA swab, right? Because right. they found the tires. Right. So they're still at his house. He remarked that Johnny May Williams was a friend of his. And that she had been in his house because he had hired her in the past to clean it. She had also been in his car. Oh, and his tire tracks were found in the field because he had an explanation for that too. Well, he had some beers and he really needed to go to the bathroom. He knew he wouldn't make it home, so he pulled over in the farmer's field and peed. Right next to a dead corpse? Oh, no, he didn't know that was there. Oh, my. He just peed. The detective asked him to come to the station for a, quote, little friendly Q&A. <laughs> Gillis agreed. At the station, Gillis' answers were even more bizarre. The oh, did he do a handstand? No, not... Okay, sorry. His answers were bizarre, not okay. his behavior. The investigator asked him if they would find any blood in his car. Are you ready for this? Mm. I don't think you can be, because it's so weird. He said that Terry got her period while sitting in the passenger seat shortly after they bought the car. And, oh my gosh, it soaked the car. <laughs> Terry needs to go see a doctor. <laughs> Quote, it looked like a massacre in the front seat. Definitely needs to see a doctor. Man, blood just started flying everywhere. <laughs> oh my gosh, this woman needs help. <laughs> he needed help. Oh my gosh. When asked, if they would, when asked if they would find blood in the back seat, Gillis said that he wouldn't be surprised if they found one of Johnny's hairs back there because she did ride in the car, but nothing else. Oh, and if they did find blood, it was probably from that period scene that I just said. Period scene? <laughs> Gosh. He thought the windows had been down that day. 
and the blood could have easily have blown out of the window and then blown back into the back seat. Well, duh. I mean, this is just squirting everywhere. Oh, my God. Sort of like planes, trains, and automobiles with John Candy's cigarette. That oh, yeah. Blew out and then blew back in the thing. Oh, my gosh. Men listening to this are just cringing right Can now. Can you just... <laughs> Guys, this, this does, does not This is happen. not reality. <laughs> Gosh. At these ridiculous answers, detectives pretty much knew this was probably their serial killer. <laughs> but they wow. needed the DNA results to prove it, and that would still take some time. Meanwhile, they couldn't keep him locked up. They had to let him go. They, of course, had a tail on him, and luckily, they didn't have to wait long for the DNA. The call from the lab came that night. The DNA matched Gillis. Warrants were signed for his arrest and the SWAT team hit his house. After they busted in, Terry, who was in bed with Gillis sleeping, started yelling and asking, what's going on? Terry later told Crime Watch Daily that, quote, Sean just shrugged his shoulders and said, sorry, honey bunny. Ew! Ew, I hate that! Oh, I hate that! <laughs> One of the officers told her, quote, don't you know you're living with a serial killer? Honey bunny. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Terry admitted to Crime Watch Daily that she had no idea. And this does not really surprise me. Well, she she's losing so much blood from her <laughs> she... periods every month. She's probably, I mean. Anemic for an sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> at least. Um, she and Gillis lived a very quiet life. She worked at a convenience store, and Gillis's only job was to bring her to work and pick her up. They had a lot of things in common. For one, they both loved Star Trek. Quote, he was cute in a little teddy bear sort of way. Yeah. The type of person you'd want to bring home to mom, actually. Oh, boy. She also admitted that they had a platonic relationship, even after she moved into his house. Gillis had told her that he didn't believe in sex and that he had been taught early on that it was a nasty thing, and he didn't want anything to do with it. So they were together for nine years, didn't have sex. Now, I'm going to add here that Gillis was addicted to porn. So addicted that he would miss work because he was watching it, thus he had no job. Oh my gosh. But it wasn't just your average porn that he was watching. He was into the kind that contained a lot of violence, even snuff films, and Russian necrophilia porn. Good God, I didn't Yikes. even know that existed. Gross. I mean, first of all, why would I? <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. And another thing, why the hell is that on the internet? That's just, uh, that bothers me to all kinds of extremes. Terry did say in another resource that Gillis had shown her a picture of a dead woman, but she didn't think too much about it. What? 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 <laughs> Alex was like, hey, look at this. <laughs> look at, here's a dead woman. I'd be like, oh, why are you, what? And why are you watching that on, mm, okay. <sighs> Remember Gillis's flying blood excuse as to blood in the car? <laughs> Didn't forget that. Well, he fed Terry some good excuses also. For example, one morning when he picked her up from work, she noticed a strange odor in the car. Gillis explained that he, well, He'd hit an animal on the way to pick her up, and that was probably the smell. After he dropped her off at home, Gillis went promptly to the car wash. And he did, by the way, have a body in the car. <sighs> in the trunk. Still, even after his arrest, Terry could not believe that Gillis was a killer. Well, I mean, 
It's sad to say, but she'd been with him for nine years. And yeah, he was odd. But I mean, it's hard to believe that somebody you love was is a serial killer. I just no, I, I'm I sure. just can't even imagine. But there are some after nine years. I'm sure there are some some signs. signs. She wanted to hear it straight from his mouth. So she visited him in lockup and asked. He dropped his head and said, yeah, sorry, honey bunny. Oh, God, stop saying that. that just, <laughs> That's what he said. Just chills up and down the spine. <laughs> oh, I guess Terry wasn't the only one Gillis confessed to because he spilled all his secrets to the investigators, too. Now, before I go into the confession, I want to tell you a little more about Gillis. He was born January 24th, 1962, which in some resources, I have to say, is said 1963. Here we go again. Here we go again. At least it's one year off and not like some of ours that are like 10 years. Yeah, I know. 10 years off. He was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Norman and Yvonne Gillis. Norman was an alcoholic and suffered from mental illness. He was in and out of mental institutions and eventually left his wife and young son, supposedly, he said, for their own good. Yvonne and Sean moved into her parents' house, where his grandparents looked after him while Yvonne worked at a local TV station. Sean had a good relationship with his mother. In fact, he would talk about her even in a sexual way. Okay. I don't know how that's good. Gross. I mean, he was just like, oh, if you ever find my mother dead, and I'm not reading this right now, but he said, if you ever find my mother dead, you know that I'll be laying in bed by her. (laughs) Anyway. I I have no words. (laughs) There are no words. This guy is just an absolute creep. His mother and grandparents could not find fault with him, calling him their blue-eyed angel. But they were blinded by love because neighbors regarded Sean wearily. They saw an angry little boy who would kick trash cans, shouting and screaming. They even regarded him as a bit of a bully. Gillis had a small police record with just minor infractions. As he got older, he was arrested for traffic citations, DUI, possession of marijuana, and contempt of court. So nothing huge. Until 1994. When he was 32 years old and he murdered 81-year-old Ann Bryan. He admitted to the police to the killing of Ann. So they did not really suspect him of that. He admitted. He told him that he had just intended to rape her, but she wouldn't stop screaming. He had to kill her. Authorities could finally close that cold case. He went on to describe the other murders, mostly But not all of his victims were sex workers, as I said, easy prey, and all of the women were very petite, making them easy to manage. Hmm. Gillis admitted to having sex with most of the victims after they were dead. In Catherine Hall's case, oral sex, thus the hair in her mouth. He admitted to stalking Hardy Smith. He noticed her running one morning and decided she would be his next victim. Three weeks later, he hit her with his car while she was still dazed. He put the nylon zip tie around her neck and put her in the back seat of the car where he strangled her. He then took her body to a nearby park and had sex with her corpse. He then dumped her body. According to his confession, Gillis said that he picked Joyce Williams up on a Highway 19. They drove around for a while singing songs that were playing on the radio. Remember that Joyce loved to sing and dance. Oh my gosh. He strangled her to death with a zip tie on the deserted road and then brought her to his house where he dismembered her in the kitchen. Holy cow. To his house? To his house. Terry was working. 
Why? She passed out because she lost so much blood during her time of the month. <laughs> Maybe. Why did he dismember her? I liked her legs, Gillis responded in the interview. Oh, it's, it's Dahmer all over again. She had beautiful legs. I wanted to keep them. After the legs, I moved to her head. Besides dismembering, he also admitted to cannibalism for the first time. He picked up Lillian Robinson in North Baton Rouge, killed her using the zip tie, and brought her home where he had sex with her corpse. He then dumped her body in the swampy water. Marilyn Nivels. You haven't heard her name yet. 38-year-old woman that no one had even reported missing. She was also a victim of Gillis. Oh, my heart. She actually escaped from his car after she saw Gillis grab a zip tie. But Gillis chased her and hit her with a metal bar. As she lay stunned, he pulled the zip tie around her neck, killing her. He took her body to his house, again having sex with a corpse, and left her body on top of a levee afterwards. Jeez. Johnny May Williams, Gillis's friend. Remember her? Yes. Hers was an exceptionally gruesome murder. As I said before, she had been beaten to death. Gillis then sliced her legs both front and back and cut off her hands. He left her mutilated body in the woods, but he took her hands home with him. There he proceeded to give the hands a manicure. What? He polished the nails. What? He probably, I'm sure he did some sexual things with them too. But What? Yeah, he gave her hands a manicure. What he did with his last victim, Donna Johnson, was just as bizarre as that. He picked her up and killed her with yet another zip tie. Then he put her body in the trunk of his car and took pictures, some having part of his license plate number on them. Smart. He took her body home and proceeded to take a shower with the corpse. Oh my God, this guy might be the grossest guy we've covered. I, 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 thank you. Even... Even worse than Dahmer. This I mean, guy is a total wackadoodle. It's unbelievable. The detective asked him, so, like, you took her in the shower. Did you soak both of you? He goes, yeah, we were in the shower. Know, can you imagine being that detective hearing this and being like, do I take it seriously? Do I ask more questions? Like, yeah. I but probably even... by the time they got to this victim, he was just like, oh, good Lord. How... That's terrible. How much more can you... I mean, this is just... After the shower, he dismembered her body, cutting the arm at the left forearm, keeping it to satisfy himself later. He cut off the tattoo and cannibalized a body part. He then dumped her body in a farmer's field. He told all this to police in a quiet, matter-of-fact way, never really saying he was sorry. But admitting to the murders, he did, however... Close the unsolved murders of Hardy Smith, Joyce Williams, Lillian Robinson. So those were all cold cases. Mm -hmm. And by admitting them, he finally closed those. Congratulations, I guess. Also, Marilyn Nevels and 81-year-old Ann Bryan. But he was so cold. I mean, Beth, you know, we talk about these interrogations and, you know, and then investigators are talking to these criminals. Mm -hmm. And this guy was chill. I mean, he was just like, it kind of reminds me about Ed Kemper from Mindhunter. Yeah. How yeah. just straight to the point. It was like, it was almost like it was normal to them. Exactly. Uh, just super chill. Like, why are you even questioning? This makes total sense. Yeah. It's, 
We'll have to cover Ed Kemper because he was and he, a very interesting mind as he well. He also used body parts for sexual yes, gratification, mm-hmm. um, which is what this dude did. Hmm. They're both just wackadoodles. But like Kemper, he knew he was off. He knew he was weird. He knew he was off. He had moments of like, eh, should I do this? But Ed Kemper also liked to talk a lot about himself yeah. so that's how we know that mm-hmm. so you have to wonder not all serial killers were like that where they uh, wanted no. to talk about it or anything like that but he wasn't sorry it was just like matter of fact yeah exactly like so bizarre to me gillis actually admitted that if he was to be let go he would find some woman to kill that night yeah it was that easy for him then Jeez. looking at a victim's photo and i'm sure this was the woman that he knew because he's beat that woman he said quote even beaten to death she looked better than she does in that photo you have of her there i mean oh my gosh i could never be an investigator or detective because that comment pissed me off oh my gosh and for them to sit there in the interview and not and jump across the table and Mm -hmm. grab this guy i i commend they're cool i mean jeez Wow. What the hell? Gillis was charged with the murders of Catherine Hall, Johnny Williams, and Donna Johnson. He went to trial on July 21st, 2008. Not only did the prosecution have his confession, they also had pictures of the victims after he killed them on his computer, including the picture taken of Donna Johnson with the the partial license plate. To add to this, former prosecutor Primla Burns was handed letters after the first day of Gillis's trial. The letters are jail correspondence between Gillis and Tammy Perp- Tammy Perpia. I hope I'm saying that right. A friend of Donna Johnson's. Tammy wrote a letter to Gillis, never thinking that he would answer. He did answer, though. Basically, writing a confession to the killing of Donna, easily giving the prosecution first-degree murder charges. He wrote, wow. quote, Your friend died quickly. She was so drunk, it only took about a minute and a half for her death. Honestly, her last words were, I can't breathe. Yours, oh so beyond sorry, Sean Vincent Gillis. End of quote. Wow. Can you imagine receiving that letter? That wasn't the only one. There were several. So, yeah. Wow. Gillis was found guilty of all charges. The jury was deadlocked on the sentence. So Gillis received life without parole. In August of 2009, Gillis pleaded guilty and was charged and convicted with the murder of Joyce Williams. In February 2009, Gillis pleaded guilty to the murder of Marley Nevels. He received another life sentence for her death. So you know how criminals are often given names? Yes. By the media or whatever. Well, Gillis is no exception. His name. I'm sorry. His name was the other Baton Rouge killer. That's the best they could do. (laughs) Which I find very funny because he had a whole file on his computer covering Derek Todd Lee. He considered the man sort of like a competitor. Wow. And Lee's other name was the Baton Rouge serial killer. So he's the other Baton Rouge (laughs) killer. He didn't even get his own name. Good. They don't deserve (laughs) names. I'm going to end with this quote from him. This guy. If anything in my useless life comes out, he said later, help the little girls today not to be the premature corpses of tomorrow. (gasps) End of story. (laughs) What 
a piece of crap. I can't, you know, I'm sorry. I've never been on jury, so I can't judge. But I can't believe they could, they were deadlocked on his sentence. I'm sorry. What do you mean? Are you expecting the death sentence? Mm-hmm. The death penalty? Mm-hmm. Do they have that in Louisiana? Yep. yep. This guy. But maybe. Wow. It's better that he just. <sighs> I don't know. I know. I told you. Like like I said, I left some graphic stuff out. Thank you. But this was probably so graphic, graphic enough. enough. And, of course, we'll post pictures of him. But he, I mean, who looks like a serial killer? Nobody looks like a serial I mean, you know, but. Right. Nobody looks like just, a serial killer. In most of his pictures, he's laughing. He's good natured. He's just cracking up at things. Ugh. He was uh, very narcissistic. He lost me at Honey Bunny. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Sorry, Honey Bunny. Oh, God. <laughs> Ugh, I hate that. <laughs> it's sort it's, of demeaning. It just, well, yeah. <laughs> what more can you say? No, no more. Let's move on past uh, this loser. Moving on. Okay, I'm going to do the paranormal a little differently. Oh, um, you know, usually we do like first the history and then we do the hauntings. Sure. I'm going to kind of do a little mix. Okay. I don't know. I guess it's not too different. I mean, you're going to get a haunting <laughs> and you're going to get a history. But I am going to start this week's paranormal story with a funny little Aiden story. Oh. The story has nothing to do with paranormal and nothing to do with Louisiana. <laughs> All right. But we got to have some Aiden in here. All right. We went to Hilton Head for a family trip recently before baby comes. And when you fly to Hilton Head, you have to fly to Savannah. And then you could drive to Hilton Head. It's about 45 minutes, an hour away from Hilton Head. But so we were in Savannah at this rooftop pool. Okay. Okay. And from this rooftop pool, you can see a lot of the Savannah city. I mean, it's just it's beautiful up there. You're right on the river. You can see that and you can see the city. And Aiden's looking out and he's he all of a sudden gets super excited and okay. starts jumping up and down pointing out into the city oh my gosh mommy it's disney world <laughs> it's disney world what was it are we going to disney world <laughs> i look to where my sweet five-year-old is pointing and it's the cathedral basilica of saint john the baptist <laughs> It's a oh. large cathedral with a large white steeple. I mean, I can see the resemblance of a castle. Yeah. Well, my paranormal kind of has something to do with this because I am covering the St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans. Oh, I've been which there. Which is the oldest Catholic cathedral in continuous use in the United States. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. It could be compared to Disney's Magical Castle as well in Mm -hmm. its appearance because it has three large steeples. It's made of this beautiful white stone. The cathedral is gorgeous from photos. It is an iconic landmark to the city overlooking Jackson Park, which just like Aiden's little cathedral he pointed out, that's a landmark to Savannah. So... Oh, there is a little. See, there's a little tie. There's a tie. Okay, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Saint Louis Cathedral overlooks Jackson Park in the French Quarter, and buried under the altar of the cathedral are eight Catholic bishops, all having served the church and the city of New Orleans in different eras and throughout different difficulties. 
but all loved very much by the parishioners, so much so that they were buried under the altar. And some of them may still be keeping an eye out on their city to this day. Mm. Now, it wasn't always this grand-looking church. The Catholic Church in New Orleans started as this little wooden structure in 1718. Holy smokes. Same location where this cathedral is, Uh but a much different look. It has taken many different appearances in its lifetime. Over the years, it has been wrecked by hurricanes, but then rebuilt. Burned down by fires, but then rebuilt. rebuilt. Collapsed. Just, just from randomly time. collapsed. Okay. The steeples have collapsed from maybe not being built properly yeah. or being old, but it's been rebuilt. Hey, I collapse once in a while, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but be like the church. You always rebuild. <laughs> I don't know, but I always get up. (laughs) Okay, so let's chat some New Orleans history, shall we? I'm going to test my history teacher skills on you all. Mm -hmm. Little side note, that's what I wanted to be (laughs) when I grew up. Oh, yeah, we know that, yeah. (laughs) Okay, we're going to start all the way back in 1762. At this time, the church had already been washed away by a hurricane and rebuilt for its first time. But it's 1762, and the Treaty of Fountainbleau was signed. What is that? Come on, Mom. You don't know what that is. What is that? I'm just kidding. (laughs) So at this time, New Orleans is under the French rule. Well, all of a sudden, King Louis XV sends this letter to the leaders in New Orleans. And he's like, hey, sorry, but like we signed this treaty during that French and Indian war up there in the north (laughs) that gave this territory to the Spanish. So see you later and uh, good luck. That's how we wrote it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) That was a direct quote. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't you like the French accent? And uh, like. uh... (laughs) (laughs) And like, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) Now, according to some resources, I read King Louis actually never sent that letter. So some resources said he sent a letter and some actually said that he actually just didn't say anything. (laughs) He just said, eh, you know, they'll figure it out. (laughs) So the Spanish come in and the residents of New Orleans just like basically ignore them. They ignore their policies that they're trying to like. Wow. Yeah. They ignore their leadership and they deprive the Spaniards of any resources that would allow them to take control. This goes on for years. I mean, like four years, four years, not like four years, but the number four years. (laughs) (laughs) Not like it goes on for years. It goes on for four years. Wow. We are never going to get through this. The Spaniards eventually get fed up. Probably like a lot of our, our listeners are getting fed up right now. And they start to enforce a little more push, and the French inhabitants of New Orleans fight back with the rebellion. Oh. In the fall of 1768, there are riots. The French bring in some Germans and local Creoles and fight off the Spanish. The French Superior Council gets together and they vote Spain out of there. (laughs) You're out. And they live in peace, harmony, harmony. jambalaya, and beignets for about a year. Before <laughs> not very long. Nope. Okay. Not four years, four a year <laughs> before the city is awoken one morning by the sound of cannon fire. Oh no. They look out their windows out into the harbor and see a convoy of twenty one Spanish ships. They didn't give up. Over two thousand soldiers 
They are not messing around. The leader of this Spanish convoy is Spanish Captain General of Louisiana, the soon-to-be new governor of New Orleans, Captain Alejandro O'Reilly. <laughs> I'm sorry, O'Reilly? You heard that correct? An Irish Spaniard. <laughs> okay. Not an Irish Springer Spaniel, an <laughs> Irish Spaniard. Okay. O'Reilly was an ex- Irish patriot, and he was hired on by King Charles III, and he was put in charge of the Spanish possession of this territory. Wow. On August 18th, 1769, the French flag was lowered, and the Spanish flag flew high. Oh, that's sad. Now, O'Reilly was a brutal leader. To prove his point about how things would go, he apparently had sent some spies ahead of the fleet's morning awakening and discovered some of the French leaders in the year's previous rebellion. Right. Okay. And so he finds these five men and he kills them in public. Mm. Some resources claimed he, they were burnt. Some claimed oh, no. that there was a firing squad. Regardless, it was done in a public fashion to prove that O'Reilly was not going to put up with treason in any way. You are now under Spanish rule. Period. Another form of punishment besides this public slang was he forbid the executed men a proper Catholic burial. <gasps> he left them in the New Orleans heat on the stairs oh, of the cathedral. No. And that's where they would stay. If anyone attempted to move the bodies, they would receive the same fate. Holy smokes. O'Reilly became known as Bloody O'Reilly from this point on. One night under the cover of rain, the beloved pastor... Père Degobert snuck out and gathered the families of the five dead men in the church. The families arrive at the church to find their deceased family member was not lying on the church steps for all to see, but was inside the cathedral, on the floor covered in dark sheets. Père Degobert gave a Catholic funeral mass for the five men. Wow. Then he and the families carried the bodies and had a procession to unmarked graves in a cemetery where the men were buried to this day, no one knows where the bodies were buried exactly. Uh-huh. It is assumed which cemetery that's close to the cathedral that is where they were sense. buried. Yeah. And over time, there was buildings that were built there on top oh. of these oh. but unmarked graves. Nobody mm-hmm. knows exactly where. But Père de Gobert loved to sing. And singing from Père de Gobert during the funeral procession is still heard to this <gasps> day. Night guards at the church will hear singing in the church and people outside will report sometimes hearing hearing the singing, but also seeing candlelight flickering walking throughout the cathedral. Wow. This singing will continue down the side alley of the church, down to where they believe the cemetery is, you know, where about the five men were buried. Yeah. Now, what I think is cool about Perdego Bear's haunting is that when he is seen, when his apparition is seen, in the church, in the alley, wherever he is seen, he is always seen accompanied by five shadow figures. Oh. You can't see their faces. They're just but shadow figures. five of them. Mm-hmm. Père de Gobert died in 1769. It was buried under the main altar of the church. Natural. He was known to be jolly and truly beloved by his congregation, always fighting for what was right. But he died naturally. He wasn't killed by the Spanish. Correct. They never found out it was him. And even if they did, I I think he was so beloved. Plus, they were probably Catholic, too. So they probably would never kill a priest. Right. Okay. So, but he was not caught. He died later on in 1769. Wow. Excellent. So after 
Père de Gobert died, Père Antoine became the new acting pastor. At first, he was not really liked because he was a very strict Catholic mm. and he was Spanish. Ooh. But over time, the community saw how hospitable and caring he was. During epidemics, he was never seen taking any food, always giving it. Mm. He lived in this little hut with bare floors, a plank to sleep on, a table, two chairs, and a crucifix on the wall. Wow. But this home was always filled with those he cared for. The poor, the sick, no matter their religion, their race, who they were or where they came from, he cared for them. This did not go unseen by his parishioners, and they grew to love him. It was during this time with Père Antoine that there was a huge, huge fire in New Orleans. Apparently, someone's candle burning at an in-home altar for Good Friday caught some drapes on fire. And this is in 1788. The buildings, the church included, were all built of wood. Wood, right. So as you can imagine, the fire spread quickly throughout the French Quarter, burning from house to house, business to business, even the church. Just a fun little side note I wanted to share, but the Spaniards made it code to build buildings with brick and mortar, which is the architecture you have all come to know in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Of course, yeah. So that's like the only thing the Spaniards really left added behind, to it. Oh. the architecture. When they eventually lose rule in 1802, and they hand it back over to the French, but that's like the only thing... But they put the little mark. I mean, that's yeah. what you know is New Orleans in the French so Quarter. That I, I'm sorry. I build did, it, those buildings. I didn't retain the date. So how long did they have it in? How long were the Spanish in control? A little over 30 years. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, back to Père Antoine. He served his community with great love. And when he died, the whole city of New Orleans mourned. Mm. He too was buried under the altar. And he too keeps an eye over his church. Père Antoine has become one of the most popular ghost stories in New Orleans. He is not only seen in the cathedral, but out and about in the city. Oh, okay. In stores, in restaurants. Really? He appears as a full-body, real-looking apparition, wearing a robe and sandals with a flowing white beard. Now, what do you mean by that? Like, if he stood next to me, would I know he was a ghost, or does he look like a person? I think he kind of looks like a person. Oh, I'll have I have some stories. Okay, so he's seen everywhere. He's like the resident ghost of New Orleans. He does not speak, but he will put his hand on people's shoulder and give them a sense of like calm, and then he'll just like walk away and just vanish. Apparently, there was a store clerk of a cigar shop that saw him walk in, stop, and pray. (laughs) The store clerk offered him a cigar. He didn't know what to do with this, but he took the cigar and then disappeared. Where the with scar- the cigar. Oh, yeah, like, oh, did the scar drop on the ground or did the scar just... I'm going to go investigate this somewhere else. I'm very confused. <laughs> I don't know what this little stick is, but... Parent Juan is seen in the church a lot as well, especially at holiday masses. He loves Christmas mass the most and is seen in the choir lofts with a candle. The bell tower is one of the most active places in the cathedral. But they aren't sure by whom it is haunted by. From what I understand, the bell tower has a clock. So this the, one of the steeples has a clock. Mm-hmm. The clock is from Paris. 
and there were only like certain men who could work, work on, on this right. clock. Mm-hmm. I guess Parisian clocks are different than American clocks. I don't. Well, you have to be a like master clock worker to work on clocks like that. Anyway. And apparently they're all from Paris. Okay. But the tower was this whole big deal. Ben Latrobe is the man that designed the clock tower slash bell tower area. Mm-hmm. And he is seen. Oh, he's seen too. With okay. a pocket watch in hand, making sure that the clock is still on time. Wow. And the Parisian clock worker that worked, they worked so hard to find, he is seen there too. In 1800s clothing, standing on the lawn, looking up at the, the clock. clock. Oh, wow. The bell will actually be heard ringing when no one is up there and there is no wind. I guess it's it's such a spooky place with weird vibes that the rule is that workers need to go up there and stay up there in pairs at all times. Really? Yes. They're not allowed. Nobody's allowed to go up there by themselves. Because of the weird vibes up there? Or maybe because they'll fall. (laughs) But (laughs) they claim that it's because of the ghosts. Other hauntings in the cathedral have been named. Marie La... Vagu, mm. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry, but she is a voodoo queen. She was also a parishioner. Oh, she's that big voodoo queen, yes. right? Yes, she followed both Catholicism and voodooism. Oh, um, she was known around town for matchmaking and nursing the sick. She was very respected. Some people believed it was healing. Some people believed the voodoo was a spell. Some believed that the voodoo was doing good and some people were frightened by her. But she did work with Père Antoine in doing good. Oh, she did. Is there a difference between like like black magic and white magic? Is there for like is there like a a white? Yeah. For witches. Is there a white voodoo and a black voodoo? I have no idea. That's a good question. Good voodoo, like matchmaking and and helping. Matchmaker, matchmaker. (laughs) Moving Moving on. on. (laughs) She was known to attend mass in a white dress, her head wrapped and always sitting in the same pew. And she has still been seen there in that pew today, kneeling and praying. Then she slowly gets up, makes the sign of the cross, and then vanishes. One woman who saw the figure vanish, like one real woman who saw the figure (laughs) vanish, saw something in the pew and went to look to see what it was. It was a very, very old rosary. She picked it up and it was freezing cold. (gasps) Interestingly enough, an old, cold rosary with the same description has been found in many places in the cathedral. In other pews, on the stairs, even on the bathroom floors, or hanging on air vents. Okay, that is so cool to me. So, (laughs) it's not cold, it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) So... Are these real? I mean, can you hold them? Can you, you can hold them. Keep yeah. them? I guess. Jeez. Just don't wear them. No. But don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get them ripped off. That is very sacrificial. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, those listeners who haven't heard that one. <laughs> Please go sac- back and listen. Religious, not <laughs> sacrificial. <laughs> That was last week's episode with Bobby Mackey. Anyway, that joke does make sense. <laughs> if you listen to it, yes. <laughs> um, Madame LaLaurie from episode four. Mom covered the LaLaurie mansion. Yes, yes. 
That's why their names sounded familiar too. I know. Mom sat here and looked okay, at me like, oh, I've had this drink. Oh, no. <laughs> the cocktail is gone, it ladies is gone. and gentlemen. And the whole thing. That's why that name just kind of flitted right by me. Madame LaLaurie is also, was also a parishioner of the church and has been seen there on a few occasions as well, mm. which I found was really interesting because she was so dark. Yeah. And so that's just interesting that she would haunt a church. Plus, she left New Orleans. She did. She came back. After a while, remember? Did she? But she's obviously still there. (laughs) Lights flickering, figures seen walking across the aisles, random singing, bells chiming. These are all things seen at St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans. And not during mass, but like, you know, like at night and stuff. (laughs) Okay, so I'm sitting here wondering. What are you wondering, Mom? If I was in... You know, in church. And I was by myself in church, which is very peaceful. I find it very peaceful. And all of a sudden I see this apparition. Would I be scared? You know what I mean? Like, because it's in a church, would I be scared? Mm -hmm. Would I be more afraid if it was like in a house or in a park or something like that? Sure. I see what you're saying. I don't know. This is such an old church. I don't know if I'd be scared. I just, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's what I'm wondering. It's like, it doesn't sound like they would be malevolent at all. No, and a lot of the hauntings seem very residual to me as well. That was my other question. It's like these priests sound so... Saintly. They sound very saintly, like they would go to heaven. (laughs) Right, so why are they haunting? So why are they there? Because if they're still here, good Lord, my way to heaven is going to be blocked tenfold. Mom, 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 mom. We've already talked about this. You are going to be haunting that vineyard out in California. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be frolicking through the fields. Yes, so I don't know what you're so concerned about. Um, would be happy giddy little ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are, honey bunny. Um, no, I think it's very residual. Like the candle during Christmas mass. He probably just loved that mass so much. Mm-hmm. So that energy is there. Or the singing. Positive energy. Yes. And then that funeral procession that Père Dagobert had Mm -hmm. with the five men. I can't imagine just all the emotions he was feeling during that. Oh, my gosh. Right. Right. But. But, you know, if you're in New Orleans, those hurricanes hit your head really fast. (laughs) So. Oh, I was thinking like a hurricane, like a weather hurricane. No, no, honey bunny. Oh. (laughs) I'm talking about the drink. <laughs> oh, man, I could have done a hurricane. That would have been really fun to make you an Alex No, drink. good Lord. Those things hit me really bad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I it's have like a lot of... like one of those giant fish bowls I'd I have, get in college. I have a lot of good stories about New Orleans. I've been there. I've never been there. I've never been there, and I want to go so badly. Not for the hurricanes, but... Well, maybe a little for the hurricanes. <laughs> I think it'd be fun. Oh, they have such good food. They have oh, such beignets. good food. Oh, beignets. I love beignets. Good and I've drinks. not had real ones. It's just, it's just fun. I mean, I was younger, so I don't know how much I, I wish I could have that kind of fun now. But oh, <laughs> I bet that's fun. It was. All righty. Well, that is Louisiana for you all, episode 77. Excellent. Next week, we will be covering stories from California. Back to California. I found a true crime story that seemed very interesting and I wanted to share it. I'm sure I'll find something in California. <sighs> she's going to go back. No, I'm to not going to go. She's going to go back to the vineyard just because <laughs> she can. 
Ooh, I can do sparkling. Though, oh, can't I? no. <laughs> you can find resources and photos from this episode on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. If you have been to any of these places or have recommendations for us, you can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Many thanks to our Patreon. Many, many thanks. We appreciate you. Definitely. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can join us. The link to that is going to be in the description of this episode. You can also find a link on our website. This was another good one, Mom. Another episode where you drank all by yourself. Drank two drinks all by myself. Gosh, I really can't wait for you to have this baby. (laughs) A lot of reasons. Many reasons, I'm sure. (laughs) And you also learned that Benjamin Franklin is not a president. Oh, good Lord. I know he's not a president. Uh. Sorry, it's fun to call you out. Because it happens so infrequently. (laughs) Infrequently. Okay, she's starting to stir. I will toast you with my agua. Okay. Cheers, Cheers. Mama. Love you, kid.